you're listening to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. You know, we've just come off Kalopapa Month, which was designated to keep the stories of Hansen's disease patients alive. There are five of the remaining residents still living on the island. Four others are here on Oahu. There is an effort underway to build a memorial to honor the 8,000 patients who were exiled there after contracting leprosy. The tentative site is where the Baldwin home for orphan boys and elderly men once stood. Brother Joseph Dutton managed that home for a good part of the 44 years that he lived at the settlement, tending to the needs of those who were sent there. The Catholic Church is considering the canonization of Brother Dutton. The Vermont native was a Civil War veteran who was raised Protestant but who converted to Catholicism. He had struggled with alcoholism and a failed marriage, but went on to live a life of penance and service after hearing of the work of Father Damien at the remote settlement. We talked to Kalopapa historian Patrick Bolin about Brother Dutton's life. He led kind of a double life. During the day, he was a functioning good citizen. At night, he said he hung out with the people of the night in drunkenness and debauchery. Eventually, he tired of that. He... On July 4th, 1876, he declared his own independence, uh, gave up drinking, vowed to reform his life, studied different religions, decided the Catholic religion with uh, its penitential system was best for him. So he converted to Catholicism, uh, went off to Gethsemane, the uh, Trappist Monastery in Kentucky, stayed there for 20 months, finally discerned that his calling was not to a life of contemplation, but a life of action. Uh, He went to a redemptorist house in New Orleans where he read about Father Damien, figured that maybe this was the best place he could be of service and do penance. So he came to Honolulu, got permission from the bishop and the president of the Board of Health to go to Kalapapa, Uh, arrived there in 1886 was met by Father Damien, and Father Damien called him brother, although Dutton was never formally a brother of any religious order. But uh, Damien had been hoping for brothers to come and help him. So he called Dutton Brother Joseph, and that's how he got there. And so he stayed there for decades? He stayed there for 44 years. As a matter of fact... Uh, well, you know, you were there, so you know the, what the peninsula is like. Uh, the original settlement was in Kalawao, that's the eastern side of the peninsula, uh, where Damien's church was and still is. Uh, the main town is now at Kalapapa on the western side of the peninsula. Anyway, uh, Dutton went over to Kalawao, left there periodically. In 1893 was the last time he ever left until 1930. So he spent his entire life on the grounds of uh, what became the Baldwin Home for Boys and the surroundings, the church and a few other close-by things. And he's buried there. Correct. He eventually was sent to Honolulu to St. Francis Hospital because uh, his health had deteriorated badly. Uh, But after he died, his remains were sent back to Kalawao, and he's buried not too far from Father Damien. And talk about, I guess, the effort uh, that's underway uh, to have him canonized. Well, there's a, kind of two parts. One is there's the Joseph Dutton Guild, uh, of which I'm a member. And that guild has been around for a few years, uh, organized originally by Bishop Larry Silva. And we're 
promoting the cause and being a source of information and so on. But entirely separate is the cause itself. So the cause for sainthood is something that was initiated again by Bishop Leary. They have to go through some original steps before it can become a formal cause. So the idea was uh, publicized locally if anybody had any comments for or against. They were invited to send them in. The U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops approved going forward with the cause. As far as I know, the only thing that remains is approval from Rome, the Congregation for the Causes of Saints. They review what little information is you know, available now, and if they don't see any reason to obstruct the cause, then they'll approve being able to introduce the cause formally and proceeding. So with that formal cause, there will be a postulator who's already been appointed, a guy in Rome. And then that the cause will have to assemble all kinds of information and documents and prepare, I think they call it a positio, which will take a while and will take a, a lot of work uh, because Dutton wrote lots of stuff. <laughs> and things have to be found that he wrote uh, reviewed, his life has to be examined. So the cause, once the congregation in Rome says, okay, submit the cause and go ahead, then that will happen. Yeah, it, it's a long process. We, uh, you know, here in the community, you know, watched the process with Father Damien and Mother Marianne Cope, and, right. and that took a long time. Yeah, well, in the case of Damien, it took approximately a century. And then do we know anything about his uh, relatives at all? Well, we know only a little bit. He very close to his mother, uh, who had been a school teacher in Vermont. So that, like I say, that was a very close relationship. His father, not so much. His father was a cobbler and a farmer, but he remembered his father affectionately, and that his father was a jolly person. Uh, he had one brother, but I don't know anything at all about him. Mm -hmm. He apparently didn't speak very much about his brother. You know, his his desire to do penance and his uh, steadfast loyalty to his vocation, which he finally discerned to be of service to a marginalized segment of society. So for 44 years, the first several of which his main activity was sore dressing, because uh, with the disease, people have lots of sores and skin problems and mm -hmm. so on. And he became an expert at that, and he could do... Routinely, well, the doctor that was there part of the time said that Dutton worked from dawn to dusk dressing sores and could do about 100 people a day, although one day he says he did up to 200 or nearly 200. Wow. So that was, he wanted to be in subservient roles. Uh, he didn't, he says that he avoided any responsibility Although mm. with his Civil War experience and his other work experience, he, he had the experience and the talent to manage yeah, yeah. The, the Baldwin home, which was built and opened in 1895. So eventually he was persuaded, I guess, to use his, his talents as a manager and administrator. Uh, so then he managed the Baldwin home, which uh, had 144 beds. And by 1926... There was 1,376 patients had gone through Baldwin Home. 
That was Kalopapa historian Patrick Boland sharing the story of Brother Joseph Dutton, who is being considered for canonization for his life of penance serving the Hansen's Disease Settlement at Kalopapa. Dutton, a Civil War veteran, died at age 88 and is buried at Kalopapa. From the mountains to the sea, to your valley's green, your beauty is everywhere, Kalopapa. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to create, maintain, and preserve open spaces for the Maui community. More at haleakalaranch.com. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, are you the kind of person who knocks on wood to prevent bad luck? Many people are superstitious, probably more than admit to it. The history, legalities, and even the economics of curses. My general sense is that belief in cursing performs an important governance function. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Beginning this evening at 7, following Counterspin. Are you service-minded? HPR is looking for a full-time membership coordinator to give our station members and volunteers the care and support they deserve. If you love public radio and are ready to join our lively and highly interactive workplace, learn more on the Employment Opportunities page at hawaiipublicradio.org. Applications due by February 25th. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering an executive MBA. More information online at scheidler.hawaii.edu. Civil Beats Joel Lau has our reality check today. He has a story about research underway here in the islands for a new COVID vaccine. Good morning, Joel. Hello. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So uh, your story caught my uh, eye because I know in the headlines today I saw that Johnson & Johnson has put a pause on production of its one-and-done vaccine, but we've got stuff, research going on here in our own backyard. Yeah, it's really interesting. They contacted me about it because they had read a vaccine article that we published last week. They told me, hey, we have our own candidate being in developed here on the island. So I was naturally really, really uh, interested myself. And this is at the University of Hawaii School of Medicine? Yep, University of Hawaii at Jepson, the School of Medicine. And so you actually got to go through the labs to see what they were doing? I did. I did. They gave me a tour last week. It was really interesting. They're working on a vaccine. They call it a protein subunit vaccine. So you know mRNA. Uh, mm -hmm. It's been all over the news nowadays. Right. So well, what's yep. the difference? Mm -hmm. So whereas, uh, so how vaccines work is uh, the vaccine introduces something called an antigen to the body. Essentially, it acts as a calling card uh, so that the body's immune system can get used to what the virus looks like and is ready to fight it. So mRNA vaccines, they teach the body's 
cells to produce its own path, own antigen, its own calling card, and then uh, the body's immune system then develops immune memory against that antigen. The protein subunit vaccine that uh, UH researchers are developing, they term they call it Cyvax. Um, skips the middleman and develop, uh, delivers the antigen directly to the body. Uh, so that's the difference between them and Moderna and Pfizer. And so the big deal with um, Moderna and Pfizer was that it needed really cold temperatures, and that was yeah. a drawback. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So that that's a really big issue, especially when you're delivering to places without vaccine freezers. Uh, I think Pfizer needed negative 76 degrees Fahrenheit, which is crazy cold, uh, really cold. And that's a problem. And so Johnson & Johnson and some other vaccine candidates out there like Novavax, you've been hearing a lot of, uh, they only need refrigerated temperatures, which is an improvement and a lot easier to ship than t- uh, vaccines that need to be super cold. Um, but refrigerated vaccines still pose a problem when you're shipping to places in the world that doesn't that don't have good refrigeration infrastructure. Um, like, for example, places in Africa or poorer countries um, that it's more difficult to get these vaccines out there. So uh, the researchers at UH, they had earlier been working on an Ebola vaccine um, it, working to make sure that the Ebola vaccine was temperature stable. Um, essentially, it didn't need uh, refrigeration. And so when COVID emerged, the UH researchers switched their researcher over to working on developing a COVID vaccine that doesn't need refrigeration and can be stored outside the fridge for two years. That's it's really cool. Yeah, that's crazy. Two years. Mm-hmm. They do it by um, freeze drying it. Uh, which is interesting. I usually think of food when I think of freeze drying, but they freeze dry the vaccine. Um, and all you need to do is add sterile water, um, mix it together, and you're ready to inject. They told me it takes around a minute um, to prepare, uh, which is, it seems like it, if if they do uh, get it through trials, um, it seems like it could make a really big impact. But that's the problem. They're having a lot of problem getting it through the trials, uh, getting even into clinical trials. So yeah. uh, as far as then this, um, this research that they're doing, um, mm-hmm. you, you know, what, they need funding? Yeah, that, that's the problem. They need funding. Um, they've been unable to get much in terms of grant funding from the government. Uh, they estimate they need another 2 to $3 million to get it into clinical trials, so essentially testing it on humans. Um, so, yeah, uh, so they've been trying to explore a lot of options. I mean, because, you know, the federal government gave $18 billion to pharmaceutical giants and pharmaceutical companies um, through Operation Warp Speed to develop the COVID vaccine, um, but haven't, hasn't given nearly as much to smaller efforts in academia uh, like the UH vaccine. Um, and so that's a problem. They've been, they've been exploring a lot of sources, uh, possible sources for uh, the 2 to $3 million that they estimate they need uh, to get it into clinical trials, um, including like philanthropy. And there was another vaccine candidate in Texas uh, that used $7 million entirely in philanthropy uh, to develop and get their uh, vaccine through trials, but they're looking through a whole bunch of different options for their vaccine. And so the idea that if you don't need refrigeration for this, though, you could really move it across the globe very quickly. Yeah, yeah, you can move it across the globe and then store it where you need it. That was a big thing that they emphasized because it can be they're designing it to be stored outside the fridge for up to two years just on a shelf. And so, gosh, they're they're just what knocking on doors, uh, trying to find, a, I guess, a white knight or uh, somebody yeah. that's going to plop some money down. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Knocking on doors, uh, reaching out. I mean, they've been working on this vaccine uh, since the beginning of COVID. 
um, using you know, scraping together resources where they can. But yeah, they're exploring a whole bunch of different options, um, and every, they're looking for anything. Anything works for them. Well, we know you're probably going to be tracking this to see, uh, you know, what progress they made. But uh, yeah, interesting yeah. story. Um, be you know, be curious to see if they can uh, get it to market and get it out there. Yes, yes, I'll definitely be paying attention, and maybe you hear a follow-up story from me in a little bit right. about this vaccine. Okay, well, thanks so much, Joel. Thank you for having me. That was reporter Joel Lau with today's Reality Check. You can read his story online at civilbeat.org. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omaui, okaholabe, ohavai. Today we're looking at an indie music artist who drew inspiration from a famous spot in Hawaii. Trevor Powers, better known by his stage name Youth Lagoon, wanted to use music to explore his difficulties with anxiety and his growing preoccupation with death. In 2010, he recorded his debut album, Year of Hibernation, while on winter break from Boise State University. In addition to singing, Powers plays nearly every instrument on the album. With the help of sound engineer and friend Jeremy Park, Powers recorded each part in different rooms of a house to create the desired effects. Powers recorded the vocals in the living room, the bass amp in the bedroom closet, and even recorded in the shower to create reverb. the songs recorded, the final piece of the puzzle was an album cover. Sticking with the intimate and personal nature of the album, Powers chose to use a photo from his family vacation some years earlier. And that brings us to today's quiz. We want to know what Hawaii locale is featured on the Year of Hibernation album cover by the artist Youth Lagoon. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right.
Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits providing senior rental housing for veterans in the islands, such as EAH Housing. NareedHawaii.com. Preserving the past for the future. Whether we are talking tarot patches to burial sites or historic buildings or historic districts, that's all covered under the mission of the State Historic Preservation Division. It is currently working on a five-year plan tied to federal funding by the National Park Service and is looking for public input. There's an online meeting this afternoon to do just that. We talked to Shipti Administrator Alan Downer and ethnographer Tamara Luthi about the challenges with long-term staffing and strategies to better manage historic properties across the state. We get a grant every year from uh, what, what Congress refers to as the Historic Preservation Fund. It's a federal grant program. One of the conditions of that grant program is that we have to have a five-year statewide historic preservation plan. And we're currently in the early stages of revising our existing plan. The purpose of the plan is to identify issues and opportunities um, and mechanisms for, uh, you know, for, for addressing the, both of those. Um, you know, it gives us the opportunity to sort of think on a much broader scale than we usually do on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, you know, we spend most of our days um, putting out brush fires, frankly, uh, you know, there's this emergency or this apparent emergency, um, and it, it sort of takes away from thinking about the big picture. And this is the, this is part of the way uh, we kind of keep our eyes on the prize, which is, uh, you know, protection and management of, of the state of Hawaii's important historic and cultural places. Um, we're, we're currently in the process of, of engaging the public and identifying what they feel are important issues, um, you know, opportunities that they see on the horizon for us. And, and that's, sort of, that's sort of where we go, uh, you know, where we're going with this plan. You know, it is not a work plan for, for the State Historic Preservation Division. It's a, it's a much broader thing than that. Um, there will be certainly some components of it that I think this, the division will be able to work on, you know, as, as time moves forward. But this is a much broader, bigger picture kind of thinking than, than just what is the division going to do. Tamara, you want to jump in here? Well, I wanted to just reiterate what Alan just said, which is that we are still gathering data. We had our first scoping meeting with the public where people could just sort of broadly share any sort of concerns that they had. Um, but, you know, prior to that, I had also engaged with a number of cultural resource management professionals, um, UH Manoa staff, uh, members from different Native Hawaiian organizations, and other subject matter experts who get some preliminary interviews from them and some focus groups to talk about a lot of their concerns as well. And I would like to state that you know, a lot of the issues that um, people have brought up are things that we are also aware of internally because I've also been having conversations with a number of our own ship staff. And some of them really will take um, additional funding and additional staffing. Others might take uh, legislative moves or rules revisions on our part, which we can work on um, internally. But some of the big issues that have kind of come up again and again are um, people would like 
to see us maybe seek funding for a statewide curation facility for artifacts, for example, um, because often there may not be places to store artifacts that have come up after archaeological inventory surveys or monitoring or whatnot. Some people have mentioned that they think it would be really helpful if we could perhaps increase training opportunities for Kanakamali or Kama'aina students to get into the cultural resource management profession in various capacities. Likewise, you could also maybe try to think about doing certification or training for a paraprofessional group of citizens who could maybe help with site interpretation or work as archaeological technicians. A lot of folks at the county level are working on a similar goal of trying to create a cultural resources layer in their own GIS systems with additional information like mo'olelo, um, historical events, things like that that could be made available to the public. But even like pictures and um, oral history interviews that you could click on and learn more about a particular location. More thematic studies, like historic context studies of specific sites or time periods. And, you know, I think a lot of these are things that we would require probably additional funding and staffing to do these things, but I think that that could really go a long way towards helping us be more effective. And they might not all be achievable within the next five years or simply by Shifty alone. So that's one of the reasons why this plan is really intended not just to be a shifty work plan, but something that any Native Hawaiian organization or government agency or interest group or professional organization can pick up and say, hey, what are some of the goals that we're really trying to achieve together? One of the things that I'd like to observe is that, you know, uh, Governor Inge is aware of, of some of these issues at a, at a broad level, and, and his proposed budget uh, has a substantial increase in funding and staffing for Shifty, um, you know, and and so, you know, we're kind of hoping that you know if, if that if that budget for Shifty passes in in any kind of substantial form like the governor uh, proposed, that some of the problems we have and and some of the opportunities that are out there, we may be able to address much more effectively than we can at, at current staffing levels. Yes, and you know, Alan, I think the last time we had talked, you had mentioned just the the difficulty in hiring staff because I think you had said you you know you had an opening, and in the past you might have gotten maybe thirty applications, and and you know during that time you got very few, you just got a handful. So how is your staffing? I mean, do you, you know what what's the vacancy uh, numbers in your department? So we have. You know, we, we currently have 41 positions, um, and, and 36 of them are filled. Um, we still, you know, I mean, we, we still are, are experiencing difficulties. I mean, we, we don't get a huge, you know, we just don't get deluged with, with applicants. You know, we are talking both with the legislature and the governor's office about what we can do, and, and I should add the universities into that, about how we can sort of uh, increase the pool of available applicants. Um, you know, we're competing with other organizations in, in you know, government um, and non-government organizations and, and for-profit firms for, for, uh, for qualified staff. There just doesn't seem to be a very large pool here in Hawaii. You know, what, what we're talking about when I talk to the consulting firms, for example, they're all saying, you know, we're turning down work. We can't do the work that people are, you know, ask, you know, giving, you know, waving money at us, and we have to say, yeah, well, sorry, we can't help you. And and what I'm hearing is that that's true for almost all the firms. So, 
it's an enormous problem, and, and Tamara alluded to this, that, you know, this is one of the things that has come up in the, in the information gathering that we've done so far about trying to, trying to find opportunities. Uh, you know, we're, we, we hope there's some discussion, for example, of creating internship opportunities. I think most people don't know what the division does or has only the vaguest notion. And, and so, you know, students in, in high school and college and perhaps graduate school as well, look at look at the, our job opening and say, you know, why would I want to do that? It's not what I want to do without really understanding what that is. So, I mean, it's a huge problem, and it's a huge problem for everybody, you know, who does this kind of work. And frankly, for the for people who who need to do critical development projects for for housing, for affordable housing, you know, for the you know addressing the the low income housing for the homeless, um, you know, fixing our roads and bridges doing water projects and sewer projects and electrical, um, you know, doing the alternative energy projects. And, you know, everybody's just flat out. And so it's an issue, and it's a long-term issue, because if we convince a handful of, say, high school students this year that this is a field they want to pursue, it will be years before they're out of college um, and ready to start a career. But, you know, every journey starts with the first step. And that was Alan Downer and Tamara Luthi with the State Historic Preservation Division talking about a five-year plan that they are soliciting public input for. There is a Zoom meeting this afternoon from 5.30 to 8.30 where the public can share their thoughts. We will have links on our website later today. those conversations resonate with listeners enough that they share their comments or stories or questions with us via our talkback line. When it comes to the Red Hill crisis and the emergency order from the state of Hawaii for the Navy to defuel the tanks, a couple of our listeners had these questions. Good morning. My name is Jay. I'm calling from Honolulu. Where exactly and how exactly is the Navy going to move the 180 million gallons of fuel in these 20-plus-some tanks going forward. Thank you. Hello. My name is Suzanne McClure, and I live in Glenwood on the Big Island. And when they're talking about defueling, I'm assuming that means removing the fuel from the tanks or tank. Where is that fuel going to be transported to? And is that location going to be safe and away from people's drinking water? Thank you very much. Bye. And thanks for your questions, Jay and Suzanne. And we know the answers will not be forthcoming very quickly. There are multiple investigations and reviews underway. And the military is challenging the governor's order to defuel, saying the state has overstepped its authority. Uh, another topic that received a lot of feedback was last week's call-in show about the pros and cons of raising the state's minimum wage. We got this email. We hear a lot about raising the minimum wage so that people can live in Hawaii while working in jobs that pay that wage. 
A reasonable alternative appears to be free, taxpayer-funded, job-focused training that will pay much more than the minimum wage. What a great program. I hope you can spread this word rather than urging people to stay in minimum wage jobs. It breaks my heart to hear people say they are impoverished but working as nail techs, as fast food workers, or totally unemployed, but believing they should be given government land and housing. Just a thought. Becky from Waikiki. We also received this voicemail about our minimum wage discussion. Aloha, this is Sheldon in Va'ava'a on the Big Island. Nice to hear that program. That was an important program, and I wish it would occur on more topics more often. The Consumer Price Index and inflation was not mentioned by anyone at any point during that hour. When the news first came three or four weeks ago that the legislature was considering this issue, it had a built-in inflation consumer price index uh, attached to it. Nobody since then has mentioned one way or the other whether the, the bills moving forward are going to include that provision. This is insane. Dollar is shrinking as we speak. Every day, the dollar is worth less. So in, in 2028, it's going to be less by a lot, especially thanks to, to medical costs and housing. The dollar is shrinking, especially now in this year of higher inflation. Aloha, you guys. Bye. Thanks for the feedback. Do you, you have a comment or story or question for us? Share it by a talkback uh, at 808-792-8217 or email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. In today's quiz, we're hopping along to, or bopping along to an indie musician from Idaho that borrowed a little inspiration from our islands. Youth Lagoon was the musical alter ego of Trevor Powers from 2010 to 2016. The project started off with Powers' first album, Year of Hibernation, written and recorded while Powers was still in college. It explores fraught themes that will be familiar to anyone who's already lived through their early 20s. The looming responsibilities of adulthood, the anxieties that come with getting older, and the reckoning with past events from childhood. Here's the track Daydream. For the album cover, Powers shows something equally personal, a, fa- a photo from a family vacation to Hawaii. Powers took the photo himself, and those with a more discerning eye may recognize the valleys of Waimea Canyon on Kauai Island. While Powers describes the photo as important to him because everyone was growing up and moving out, and it was the last family vacation. That was the answer we were looking for. We have no winners. But that's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to experience treasures of devotion, human connection in secular and sacred art, featuring works from the 14th century to present day. HonoluluMuseum.org. 
on the next fresh air, how the Republican Party became the party of Trump. We'll talk with Jeremy Peters, author of the new book, Insurgency, how Republicans lost their party and got everything they ever wanted. He covers national politics for the New York Times. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at three, following On Point. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Matson, investing in new ships, cranes, and terminal improvements to serve the needs of Hawaii communities for generations to come. Matson.com. Civil Beats Denby Fawcett has a column out today about the passing of respected Hawaii author David Forbes. Researching Hawaiian history was his passion, and the state archives was a kind of home away from home for him. Just before the pandemic, we sat with Forbes as he combed through boxes of photos there for one of the many books he was writing. He had just finished a massive book on the 200-year history of the missionaries in Hawaii. And when I last talked to him, he had just published The Diaries of Queen Liliuokalani. Hawaii's Ali'i children were encouraged to write journals as they were educated at Royal School, and Liliu's diaries covered her later years, 1885 to 1900. The Queen's daily notations were seized by those who overthrew the monarchy and who were looking for information to use against her. 125 years later, the diaries give us a slice of life as a royal. In our conversation that we revisit with David Forbes, he details the significance of roast pig on the menu and more. What's revealed on the handwritten pages of her journals range from the mundane to the mood of politics at the time of the overthrow. Here's David Forbes. Their existence was known, mostly. Uh, they were divided up early on between the Bishop Museum and the um, State Archives. The State Archives collection was acquired by a seizure when the 1895 counter-revolution failed. Um, the Hawaiian government went in and searched her residence for evidence to use against her that she was complicit in the um, revolt. And they seized the diaries as evidence of what she was up to. And those diaries, they were never returned to her. and They remained the property of the Attorney General. And they were sealed up in tin boxes. And in 1920-21, they were transferred to the state archives when they were opened for the first time since since the revolution. So they were seized as evidence? They were seized as evidence. And there was one diary that they didn't get a hold of. I don't know why, but they didn't. And that is still owned by a, a, a descendant of John Dominus's family. And that diary has never been seen by the, pub, uh, by the public until or used until this this account uh, was published. Okay, so you have it included in there. Oh, yes. The missing diary. Yes. Fabulous. It's very interesting, and it, it, uh, it explains a lot of stuff that we didn't know about. Is there some reason why it wasn't kept together? No one knows. Um, e. Alkea, Curtis E. Alkea, who was one of her trusted uh, friends and who was then in her business offices, the lead trustee of her estate, 
um, took some of the diaries and gave them to the Bishop Museum. Now we don't know why they were not; those were not put in the archives, also, but they weren't. So um, we can't find out. And there are some diaries that are missing. Whether they they were always diaries or whether they were thrown out or something happened to them, that we there's no way of knowing. Now, when I last saw you at the State Archives, you shared with me that uh, one of the interesting things that you discovered by poring over these documents is that the Queen kind of notated a couple of times that but she didn't much care for some of the hula. Well, I don't think that she had much to do with hula because she was raised as a Westerner in many ways. And her, her brother, Kalakau, was very, obviously very interested but I think that she just didn't, whether she didn't like the hula or whether the hula people showed up at the wrong time, we don't know. Uh, there's one entry where a group of Hawaiians came to Wanda to, to uh, present her with a hula performance, and she said, I have no time for hulas. Now, whether she just was bored with hulas or whether she was so wound up with the political mess she was in, it's hard to tell. But, I mean, that's a statement that comes out, and um, it's going to be rather surprising to people, I think. So do you have the name of the the, the chant or the hula that they were going to do for her that she never saw no, or anything no, like that? No, she didn't, she didn't get into excruciating detail like that. I mean, the, most of the diaries are little pocket diaries, and and there are probably eight lines of, te- of, of, of blank that you can fill in per date, and um, she just didn't do that. If she'd written down everything like that, it, the book would have been twice as good and three times as long. But she didn't, and we can't go back and ask her now. So. And the condition um, of these diaries, what can you share about that? Well, they're in very great, they're in fine sh- shape. They haven't been used very much. And, you know, they were locked up for 25 years. And one of the problems is that the writing is tiny on tiny sheets, and it's in pencil on erasable paper. So there are some some entries that are illegible, and some have been erased. Now, who erased them, I don't know. Maybe she she probably did. Uh, again, we don't know why that's happened. Any other interesting things that you came across that you think people might be struck by that might show a different dimension of the queen? Well, I mean, there are all kinds of things, uh, things that she used to do and and. They're sort of daily routines that she would get into of uh, 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 unhappy uh, relationships with her husband. And they seem to have had what one person termed a dog and cat relationship, and they'd get into quarrels, and he'd go away and come back. And she seems to have had an agreement with him that for repentance, when he came back, he had to bring a roast pig for her lunch. And, okay. and so, so there's several roast pigs that show up on the, on the lunch menu. And, you know, it's ordinary things that she would do, like planting in the garden. Or do you think that she was planting native things? No. She planted roses, gardenias, and violets. And she had chickens, and she she sold the eggs to the neighbors. Now, that's a hardly a, a royal activity, but, I mean, this is what she was doing. She was literally making egg money. And did she talk about any other pets she might have had? No. I mean, I don't remember seeing anything about a cat or a dog. She talks about her horses a little bit. There, there must have been animals around. I mean, everybody has animals. I think oh. I've seen a picture of her and an animal. That's why I ask. So just was well, curious. Well, Fluffy is down in history is nameless. But there are odd things, you know, in the diaries. There was one thing that 
stumped me. In 1886, she went with Mrs. McGrew and rode an elevator. Well, I couldn't find out what that was, and I, the, Jason, the crack archivist at the State Archives, was able to track that down for me. There was a Mrs. Nicolon who had a gun shop on Fort Street, and above the gun shop was a ladies' department where there was fancy goods and underwear and that sort of thing, and that's where they went up to. But the idea of a of a ladies' department over a gun shop was pretty pretty odd, and, and I, that's now in a footnote, so people know what it is. So do you have pictures of the diaries in the book? Um, no. Okay. We were going to, and the pictures didn't show up very well, but we do have a photograph of the, the beginning of her 1893 diary when she, she mentions the overthrow. One of the things that strikes you is that she was very busy. It was sort of nonstop activity, charitable activities. You know, she was constantly arranging to have readings and concerts and things like that for charitable purposes. And this went on and on and on. And this is one of the ways that ladies could raise money for, for good causes. I mean, she she contributed to a ladies' lunchroom for a while. And all of this sort of activity that that just sort of passes you by, there she is. I mean, some of the small things that she did for this period are as as interesting as her talking about going to the state balls and um, that sort of thing. Anything more just on the politics of the time? Oh, well, there's quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, that was crucial to her life. But again, uh, she would mention, I have to see so-and-so, I have to see such-and-such, and and we talked about business. She didn't always mention exactly what they were talking about, but sometimes I was able to find out by reading other things what had just happened. And they, they were, and when I could do that, I put that sort of information in, in as a footnote. Okay, but you were more struck by just kind of the everyday life of the queen. Well, you know, she's presented to um, modern Hawaiians as a mythic goddess now, and but she was a real person, and she... You know, she didn't just swan around, um, you know, granting audiences to people and, and so on. She was a hardworking woman, and this is the kind of life she had, she had taken up for herself, and um, it's very interesting. She shows up more as a real person in the diaries than people are going are, are gonna to expect. And so how long have you been poring over these diaries? For a long, long time. <laughs> it's been yeah. about 10 years. 10 years. Wow. I mean, because you've been poking around the, those state archives for, what, 65? Something like that. I started in there in 1957. Now, you're, you're not here in the islands anymore. Do you miss just going down there and digging through those boxes? Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, it's like an alcoholic withdrawing, you know? Mm. But I intend to come back because I'm, I may well be working on a volume of her letters, which I have actually about 80% done. So um, the idea was, is perhaps to do that as a companion volume to the, um, the, the diaries. Okay. And then her life will be as complete as I can make it. I've probably read more of the, of the stuff in there than anybody ever has or ever will. And if the state archives is the box that holds Hawaii's most important papers, it's it's the great treasure house of Hawaii. And the the amazing thing about it is, unlike most 
uh, repositories. Hawaii has never had a major fire that cleaned out the government offices. We've been very fortunate, haven't we? I mean, the first document, in the earliest documents in the archives go back to the 1790s. Well, it is interesting because I get the opportunity to talk to authors of books who get to use the Hawaiian language newspapers and yes. and those those even the court records that were in Hawaiian and it's just spurred a whole array of 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 new books that brings those things out to the forefront again. Well, one of the one of the drawbacks on of the modern thrust to do all the Hawaiian language stuff is that they need to always remember that if they can't understand something, read the English newspapers of the same period, because Hawaiian is a little bit fugitive, and Hawaiian reporting is very different than Western reporting. So that from a Western standpoint, it will become abundantly clear what was going on. And that was our 2020 interview with the late historian and treasure hunter, David Forbes. He was talking about a book distributed by University of Hawaii Press. The collection of diaries of Queen Liliuokalani was published thanks to a nonprofit dedicated to perpetuating the Queen's legacy. Hui Hanai was established in 1969. It has published a number of books, including The Queen's Songbook and Hawaii Story by Hawaii's Queen. The diaries had been 10 years in the making, and Forbes, as you mentioned, had been working on a collection of the Queen's letters and other projects when he died last month just before his 81st birthday. it up for Talking History today. Tomorrow, we talk future, the future of Kalapapa with the new park superintendent. Got a Kalapapa memory to share, recorded on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also connect with us on Facebook. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow, won't you, for more of the conversation. (laughs) 